the Jewish views on saying goodbye to the Jewish community of Cork as the Hebrew congregation at South Terrace closes its doors. What will we in store with this year's Jewish Book Week? We have a preview of the Literary Festival. And how can you walk for Crohn's? But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Security leaders have confirmed that Jewish schools in the UK were among the seven institutions targeted by hoax bomb threats earlier this week. No devices were found and the schools in question were advised not to order everyone off the premises. Police in the West Midlands, where two non-Jewish schools received hoax calls, declared the threats not credible. In the past month, it's believed up to 100 schools have been targeted by the hoaxers who call from abroad. The Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has expressed support for the right of Israel to live within secure boundaries as part of a two-state solution. The news came out of Mr Corbyn's first face-to-face meeting with the Board of Deputies since being elected leader. The Board said it was a positive and constructive meeting. Mr Corbyn also affirmed his support for Jewish faith schools and Shechita, the slaughtering of animals according to Jewish dietary laws. In the Irish Republic, the last synagogue in Cork has closed, bringing to an end 135 years of Jewish history in the city. The trustees said they'd tried everything to save the synagogue, but that they had no money and no members, and therefore no future. Chelsea Football Club are set to take legal action against unofficial vendors who are selling T-shirts picturing the Spurs striker Harry Kane as a Hasidic Jew with the slogan, he's one of your own. Spurs fans are often subjected to anti-Semitic chants. Tottenham Supporters Club said it's hugely disappointing that anyone could think in 2016 that the T-shirt was acceptable. And finally, three Jewish sisters have made pop history by topping the charts in Israel with a song written entirely in Arabic. The song, Habi Galbi, has had more than one million hits on YouTube. The sisters, who call themselves Awa, which is Arabic for yes, grew up in an isolated village near the Egyptian border and sing in the Yemeni dialect of their Jewish grandparents. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Vivian. Redbridge manager John Jacobs claimed his midfielder Sam Solossi produced the best performance he's seen in 35 years of Jewish football. Saying the 21-year-old produced a masterclass of a display, he's now hoping he can help him to the division title. Elsewhere, Josh Burnham enjoyed a winning start to his professional boxing career as he beat Rob Brown 40-37 on points in Chigwell, while swimmer Adam Warner warmed up for May's European Swimming Masters Championships by winning six gold medals at last weekend's Valentine's Masters meeting in Sudbury. And finally, Real Madrid striker Cristiano Ronaldo has been attacked on social media by pro-Palestinian supporters after he appeared on an advert for Israeli cable company Hot. You can watch the video and catch up on all the Jewish and Israeli sport from around the world at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me, I'm delighted to say, is editor Richard Ferrer, as well as news editor Justin Cohen, who we haven't had for a couple of weeks. So welcome to you both. 
Justin, shall we start off with Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn? What's he been up to? Yeah, well, we've all been waiting for the meeting finally between him and the Jewish community leadership and the Board of Deputies secured that meeting a couple of months ago. And we've been waiting all this time for, for them to actually sit face to face and finally be able to put many of the concerns of the Jewish community around Israel and of his associations to the leader of the opposition to hear what he actually had to say about these things. It seemed like this was very much a meeting of two halves. I think in in part we heard support for circumcision, for uh, shechita and for faith schools uh, and also quite an important, if you'd like to think, obvious statement in support of two-state solution, in support of Israel's right to exist within safe borders. You know, some for some people that wasn't always obvious that we were going to hear that so clearly from Jeremy Corbyn, but we've we've got that. But it's also clear from the Board of Deputies statement after the meeting that they're not happy with everything. They didn't get uh, the reassurances on Labour Party's continued commitment, opposition to all types of boycott that they were looking for. And on the issue of Jeremy Corbyn's associations, his past meetings with various people, he was just able to say that he would reflect further on those issues. I think, though, that we should take a moment to remember that what he has said in the past, his attitude, although has been questioned by by the Jewish community, he has made it very clear that as far as he's concerned, he's a friend to all. And he does make every effort to try and treat everyone on an even keel, regardless of whether or not we as a community think that's right or wrong. That's what he makes an attempt to do. So that is his reasoning. And I suppose that it's it's hard to expect someone to completely break away from that reasoning if that's the way they do think. A picture paints a thousand words, and the picture on page two is of uh, Mr. Corbyn Tylus, as he's often sartorially attired, kicking back as Gillian Merron and Jonathan Arkush from the border intently staring at him. It's the sort of image that you can imagine. He, he probably doesn't want to be there. He's like a fish on a hook. It's a lot of what he hasn't said, as much as what he has said. He hasn't mentioned the word Israel. I still haven't heard him mention the word Israel publicly. He said a lot of things that I think would stick in the throat of a, of, of a lot of people who see the good in Israel and what Israel has achieved and the example it sets, particularly in the area that it finds itself in, in the Middle East. There's a, a lot of positivity that you can attach to Israel and Israel's supporters that is just not being reflected in a lot of what Jeremy Corbyn is saying. Nice that he's chatting to the Jewish community, way too belated. And judging by the minutes of this meeting, it was far too thin on the ground in terms of substance. I think you know, this is certainly an unfortunate picture. Uh, it's, unfortunately, the community has had a couple of big meetings with big politicians recently, and the pictures that have come out of that have in, the way, in a way been more of a story than, than the words. However, I think Richard's being a slightly harsh on this. We, we, uh, we're not going to get Jeremy Corbyn to change his fundamental principles, the ideas on which he's built a, a career lasting 30 years. But at the same time, for him to be having these meetings, for him to sit down for the first time probably in his career and hear this other side, why boycotts are bad, why boycotts of settlement goods are also bad, I think, you know, let's let's give it a bit of time, let's see what happens. I think this is certainly a starting point. But, you know, if the party moves as a result of general party policy set at the party conference towards any kind of boycott of settlement goods, then clearly we've got a major problem. It would have taken an almighty effort post-Ed Miller 
Miliband for the Jewish community to get back on board the Labour Party. It would have taken a very, very proactive leader to have reached out and said the right things. Corbyn has done the exact opposite of that. It's 180 degrees in the wrong direction when a move in the right direction was required when he took power last autumn. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. We still haven't managed to pin down an interview. He hasn't done an official interview with the Jewish community. I'm not holding my breath. Well, there you go. You see interesting views around this this very studio. So who only knows what you out there are thinking? Do feel free to tell us. Those studio at jewishviews.co.uk. Absolutely not linked to the last story. Let's make that perfectly clear. There is another story about Facebook hatred. There's a petition, I believe, encouraging Facebook to make the right noises. What's that about, Rich? On the face of it, a positive move. There is an online petition that's just been launched asking the UK government to push Facebook to delete hate speech wherever it finds it. Now, my my first problem with this is what is hate speech? There's a lot of idiots saying a lot of idiotic stuff on the internet. Before the internet, the village idiot used to sit on his or stand on his soapbox in Hyde Park spouting a load of nonsense. Now he has the opportunity electronically to, to say it to a wider audience. A lot of it is nonsensical and a lot of it is obviously free speech and you can't censor what people say. Facebook and Twitter do have a responsibility. In fact, Twitter only in the last seven days or so actually cancelled, I think, over 150,000 accounts that were pushing for pro-ISIS and calling for jihad and all sorts of things like that. So obviously it gets to a point where it needs to be reined in. My concern is that point's probably only, what, two, three, four percent of, of, of hate speech, for want of a better term, on the internet. And something like this has, has a, a great danger to maybe curtail free speech, where obviously we need to protect it and safeguard it as much as we can. It is a very fine balancing act, as we have discussed many times before on this very program and other incarnations of it. I suppose the other problem as well, though, of course, Rich, is that the difference between someone getting on their soapbox in Hyde Park and, as you say, getting it to a wider audience online is that the social media side of online is such a new concept still, even now, even though it's been part of our lives for a few years, it is still new. People are still learning more and more about it as it sort of outgrows its its possibilities. And I think that, generally speaking, the powers that be, the authorities are still trying to work out how to curtail certain issues such as hate speech. Let's end on a nice lighter note, shall we? Multicolored bagels. Now, I've seen a video, I'm sure, on social media, sorry to mention social media again, floating around showing a cafe, I believe, based in New York, demonstrating multicolored bagels. Now, this sounds like it's full of preservatives. What are we talking about, Richard? Well, it may not have escaped your attention when you walked into the offices just a short while ago that most of my colleagues are chomping on these multicolored Technicolor bagels from uh, Yummies in Mill Hill. Front page picture caption this week. You, you, the, the, the headline, as, as I believe, is past the salmon and the sunglasses. They look, ex- <laughs> they look extraordinary. They're called rainbow bagels. They're all the rage in Manhattan. And Yummies in Mill Hill decided they wanted to try them out too. The kids love them. They're queuing up around the block after school. They were going to do it as a novelty. Now they're doing it every day. I've suggested that they do challah next time. And then I said we can maybe do a story with the headline challah hallucinations. So look out out for that one. And the other one, Technicolor. Oh, Technicolor. Oh, no, please, please spare us. 
so yes very exciting and uh, there's some very very happy members of staff chomping away on some free lunch as we speak and well i may very well be tempted if there's one scattering about spare to maybe taste some of it after this if there are any of course left it's distinctly possible not anyway thank you both very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the jewish news across london at various outlets or you can read the e-edition online at jewishnews.co.uk First this week, you heard earlier on in the news with Viv that a synagogue in Cork has just closed to end 135 years of history in that region for Jews. As a result of it, we wanted to find out more on this week's programme. So I have been speaking to historian and genealogist Stuart Rosenblatt, who resides in Ireland. I started by asking him to tell us a bit about the history of Cork's Hebrew congregation. The Cork Jewish community really started after the May Laws of 1891 or 92, when people from Russia had to get out because of the turmoil and degradation that they were enduring. Many of them ended up in Cork because they thought they were going to America and got shortchanged, and they thought Cove was New York. And if they asked the question, where are the skyscrapers, if they even knew what skyscrapers were, they were told around the headland. In actual fact, one person was in Limerick for two weeks before he realised he wasn't in America. That's extraordinary. So they literally, they were almost tricked into thinking they'd gone to America. In some cases, yes. Others got away as far as they could from Russia on on their travels to go to America. They were shortchanged by the captains and they got off in Cork and they thought they were in, in America too. Others were pregnant or had children. Some ran out of kosher food. Some were apparently sick sick and others weren't going any further because they were, were just too, too tired. And at its peak, were there quite a large number of Jewish people in Cork or has it always been a relatively small community? Relatively small, about 400 families would have lived there maybe at the, at the peak in an area uh, around what's called Jewtown. They had a special area called Jewtown because so many Jewish people lived in a small enclave in Hibernian buildings and in the envines of Hibernian buildings. So it's really a large tenement house. And in the 1901 and 1911 census, you can, the records are there of the families. Then they also they had problems in Limerick. Uh, there was a boycott. Well, basically, it was a boycott. It was known as the Limerick Programme in 1904 with the redemptionist priest, Father Craig, encouraged people not to pay their due debts to the Jewish traders. And um, the people were starved out. In effect, they left Limerick to Cork, and a lot of the people went to England as well. Some came to Dublin. Now, that sort of leads, I suppose relatively nicely, although it's obviously not very pleasant what you've just told us, but it leads on to me asking you what is life like for someone who is Jewish in Ireland? Because all we seem to hear throughout Europe is that various Jewish communities have to tolerate the most appalling anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish feeling towards them. Speaking as someone as yourself, who although not necessarily from Cork, but does reside in Ireland as a Jew. Do you find any hostility towards Jews in Ireland or is it, relatively speaking, a fairly peaceful place to live? Well, anti-Semitism 
is always rife. There is an undercurrent of embracing the Palestinians and everything Israel is, is wrong. As for the individuals, there's so few Jewish people left here in Ireland that it's very hard to find a Jewish person. So it's not directed individually that I know of or come across cases, even to myself. I can't say that there has been overt uh, anti-Semitism, but there is certainly a tremendous undercurrent to boycott all Israeli goods. On the other hand, they don't mind using Israeli medicines and uh, discoveries of <laughs> keeping yourself right for the, the mobile The same phone. old story really, isn't it? I think that yes, if people yes. truly knew what it was to boycott Israel, then an awful lot of people wouldn't live the lives they lead. But that's another discussion. In particular in this discussion, we're obviously reflecting on the sad closing of Cork's last remaining synagogue. That's obviously the Hebrew congregation of Cork at South Terrace. And I understand that you were at the closing service. So for those of us who obviously perhaps maybe listening in the UK and weren't able to go, what was that like? Well, it's an interesting, an interesting after, afternoon service. Uh, I should mention that my, the second marriage to take place there in 1891 was my grandparents. Oh, wow. That's the my, second ever one. The second, the second marriage, yes. Goodness. My grandparents. But that's my only basic principal association there, besides doing all the research work on the graveyards and marriage records, uh, whatever else I could find. But the, the service itself is, there's no such thing as a service for deconsecration of a synagogue, so I'm told. So the afternoon is taken up with uh, Mincha, and then they take out the Torah, ultimately they take out the Torahs, they go around three times and they march out with the Torahs and that's the end of that part of the ceremony and they finish off in a few words of appreciation and that's um, Kishmir and Tachas at the end of the day. That was, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realise you spoke uh, again. Excuse you, thank term. you very much, excuse <laughs> that. <laughs> What's, I'm sure that any Yiddish speakers who understand what that means will forgive us on this occasion. It's fine. If you don't understand, look it up online. But as far as the... As far as the actual service is concerned, obviously it sounds quite short and sweet and, as you say, there's no official service. One would hope is because there is not many occasions with any luck to close a synagogue. Do we know what the plan is for the synagogue now, though? For example, where have the Torahs gone? Do we know their new home yet or, or is it not known at the moment? It's not known. It's been taken over by another organization which will maintain the edifice of the of the synagogue after all what is a synagogue it's a building it's a living thing and everything living moves on it's not a tragedy that has happened it should have closed 10 years previously and the last man standing is freddie rosehill and he's 89 years of age and he's held it over for five years and people say oh they should have kept it for another five years yes they did and five years more so they held it for 10 years too long. Now, I believe you know Freddie. I don't, unfortunately, we couldn't get Freddie on this program, but I believe that you know Freddie, or at least you met him at the closing service. Has he told you any anecdotes of, of his time there? Has, has he recalled what life was like at its, at its best, or has he just unfortunately known simply a struggle in its, in its declining years? Well, he took over the position of looking after the, the synagogue inadvertently because he was the last man 
last man standing, and literally he is the last man standing to turn off the light. But put it another oh, wow. way, it is not a tragedy. It's an ongoing situation in many, I use the word rural or provincial towns throughout England and Ireland and everywhere else in the world. They all have 40 years. Here they have 120, 130 years. And it's a simple fact of life that when people moved on and they qualified, they couldn't get work here. The greatest export of, of Ireland is human. It's human people. It's people. And there's no jobs for them. So they went to abroad where they get a better future. The girls wondered where they're going to find a husband. And the boys wonder where they're going to find a wife. So they all went over to Leeds or Manchester or Bradford. And I uh, think a lot, of, a lot of the time as well, people forget that Jews throughout history have moved on. We never stay in the same place for very long. Certainly, maybe for some people, it's their entire lifetime they've spent. As you say, if Cork has a history of 130 plus years, then obviously not one person's going to know from start to finish what that time was like. But I suppose you could argue all good things come to an end. And frankly, that very topic is actually going to be discussed later on in this very program with our schmooze team. But as far as you're concerned, have you noticed any particular trends yourself when looking up all of your research in genealogy? Do you notice that there are, say, some generations who live in one part of Ireland and then another part live in another? Do you see what I mean? Is there a pattern? Well, of course there's a pattern. Uh, Dublin being a major city, uh, they, from the provinces where people lived, they came to Dublin mainly for the Ontavum, but they'd go back and work in, in the other larger, larger towns. But again, they get married and they move on and they come back to, they want to have Yiddishkeit, they get older, they die, the children move on and now the, the parents are going to join their children abroad. So it's an ongoing situation. There are many people who think there's only 100, uh, there's 150, 160 Jewish people belonging to the synagogue here in Dublin. There's 80, possibly, maybe 70 only in Belfast. Cork has one or two people living who were belonging to the synagogue there. But they, overall in Ireland, Southern Ireland, there's 18 or 1900 individuals who profess the Jewish faith in according to the last census. But where are they? They're not contributors. And unless you're going to contribute to an organization or a faith or a church, then you can forget about it. And this is how it goes. Historian and genealogist Stuart Rosenblatt talking to me there about Cork's Hebrew congregation at South Terrace, which closed its doors for the final time this week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by children's author Joe Craig and community volunteer Andy Lucas. They'll be discussing communities moving on and changing locations. Plus, community reporter Diana Toman will be speaking to Paul Goodmaker from Four Crones about a forthcoming fundraising event they have. Now, one of the biggest events of the year is nearly upon us again, Jewish Book Week. It happens to be our very own Kate Fulton's favourite, so who better to find out more for us? And she spoke to the co-chair and director of Jewish Book Week, Lucy Silver. Kate started by asking Lucy... What goes into organising such an event? 
Well, first of all, you have to do a kind of an overview of the books that are emerging in the following year. And yeah. how do you know what's emerging? Publishers send you books and you also have to scout around yourself. You read all the latest reviews. You also elicit submissions from publishers because lots of them come late. Lots of them come at the wrong time. Are they fighting to your door because they want to be on Jewish Book Wicket as the most wonderful platform, is it not? Well, thank you very much. We like to think so. The answer is, yes, many of them are. And and obviously we can't present everybody that indeed we would like to, never mind who would like to come. So you've got a whole list of, by, by what month, a whole list of people, sort of mid-year. Yes, by the summer, really. And that in itself is quite tricky because a lot of people, particularly the most distinguished, eminent writers, speakers, don't want to commit that early. They want to retain their freedom for February. On the other hand, there's a certain, there's only a window of timing because if you come at them a month later, then they'll have made a commitment and say, sorry, too late. And do you have to then somehow decide the range of books you've got, presumably all different types. You can't just have fiction or war stories. That's absolutely true. We try to create a balance and we also create a balance between, if you like, debut writers, people who are underexposed and and people who bring us a wide audience who, who will allow us to put on debut writers, for instance, for free. And what makes you choose February as your month? Well, February, it's always, it's traditionally been February, but in fact, we're thinking of moving it to March in the next year or so because we always overlap with at least one weekend of, of half term. But February is a nice, quiet month, and we're not in competition with festivals like Hay. And also, well, we are, in, we are I mean, there is half term and some people are away, but on the other hand, those who are around are not kind of running in the park or anything like that. They're ready to come to book-related events. And you and your very efficient team, based at Ort House in Camden Town, put this together by what, when have you sort of finished putting it all together? We've pretty much finished by September. And then anything after September is a late edition. But I have to say, we put in a new event last week because somebody dropped out at the last moment. And it was a big whole one event. That's a 400-seater midweek and so we had to quickly invent a new session from... And presumably, the, the there's going to have to be a crowd puller if there's that well, many That's seats. right, that's right. So we selected something topical, invited one or two people. So far, we're at two. We may remain at two because they're both really quite hot stuff, if you like. And you're back at King's Place. Why King's Place? Well, King's Place is... First of all, it's a wonderful venue, state of the art, you know, beautiful, attractive, fantastic sound. And it has three halls, which means that we can put on three simultaneous events, 21 on each Sunday, for instance. And there's lots of space. There's restaurants, cafes. And tell us a little bit about the lineup for this year's event. I think we've got 12 Israelis, many of whom we're bringing over, from Abi Yehoshua to Ayelet Sabari, who just won a prestigious Sammy Royal Prize, and in between all kinds of others. So, that, so we have them, and they're speaking on you know, literature, politics, society, Israeli society. Then we, I mean, I'm quite proud of the fact that we have five science events. What's a science event? Five events exploring 
scientific theories and advances and the future of science. So we've got two events on Einstein, one on Einstein the Man with Robert Winston and Stephen Gimbel, who's a new biographer of Einstein who's coming over from the States. So they're going to explore Einstein. His He was a very active agitator, if you like, for politics, for Zionism, and very, very strong views. So they're exploring that side of him. And then we've got two astrophysicists, one from Imperial, one from Oxford, coming to talk about Einstein in the 21st century and various others. And how do you decide which of those books are going to make this year's book list? We decide on what we find interesting and we think will interest our audience. And who are the audience mainly? The audience... We have our loyal core, who, you know, several thousand who come year on year. And then we, on top of that, there are people who each year we seem to accumulate about another thousand people. Extraordinary yes, yes, which is very, very nice, um, who come from everywhere and who may, him, who may have read a review, picked up a brochure at King's Place or in, or in Waterstones or another bookshop, library, and come along for an event that just appeals to them. And these booklets are everywhere, these these green booklets giving the whole of the range of, of what's going on. And it's not just a week, is it? We call it Jewish Book Week, but it isn't. No, we have two preview events, um, Simon Seabag Montefiore and then this other theorist of big ideas, Ian Morris, the visiting professor at LSC with another LSC professor. Hadley Freeman's doing the following Saturday at JW3 on her 80s films. And then we start festival proper on the 18th, in fact, with a performance of Some Enchanted Evening. Songs and shows of Rogers and Hammerstein, a live performance, and that's followed by another performance on our so-called opening night, which is Saturday the 20th, and then we finish on Sunday the 28th. So it's kind of 10 days, which, you know... And it extends at JW3, doesn't it? With the, isn't it the lunch times? The lunch times are all the way through our week proper. Yep, so they're 22nd to the 26th. Yes, we have, in fact, 10 10 events at JW3 this year for the first time. And they're not just speakers talking to the audience. They're mainly their their interaction, questions and answers. Yes, pretty much all the events. And they're all, right. They all have Q&As. Yeah, we encourage Q&As. People like to ask questions. Well, they're author that they've read. Yes, quite, quite. Or we hope that they will read in many cases. Yes. Is there a typical goer? Because you tend to think of them, we are a people of the book, and you tend to think it would be some sort of intellectual reader, read, read all these great some, names. Some are, some are. I think it varies completely. You know, those who come for, well, for instance, we've got the big debate. The on, Rabbi Sachs debate. The, well, it's, it's not just Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Sachs, Simon Sharma, Howard Jacobson and Melanie Phillips on the Jews today. You know, the challenges confronting the Jews in 2016. What are they? That's so popular that we've got a live relay into Hall 2. So that's going to be 600 people listening to that. And then there'll be a lot of hits on our website. We, pre- we present all our events, pretty much all our events, for free to either to download or watch or listen to on our website. And we can can tell how many hits they get. And that's going to get a lot. And what reactions do you tend to get from your attendees? Mostly positive. It's really very nice. Everybody's very enthusiastic. And they write in and people do respond. I mean, the complaints, you know, at King's Place are tend to be about trivial things such as difficulties in parking. 
So well, oh, that's the worst thing that happens. Yes, quite, quite. Or that we have simultaneous parallel events, too many parallel events, if people want to go to both. And or, nobody likes choice. From nobody likes choice. Or that they can't get into the, you know, the, the really big sellers. Well, they, they are sell selling up. fast, aren't they? they? They are selling. Yes, some, some, they do. They are do. there still tickets available? Of course there are tickets available. There Great. are tickets available. For, and how for do we get hold of things. them? You either contact King's Place, go to the website or ring King's Place for tickets, or if in the case of JW3, you book up it through, J- through JW3. And we what sort of prices are there? Do you have any discounts for multiple bookings? Or We have a 10% off for three bookings or more. And the at JW3, you book for the afternoon. So you, you can you book, uh, there's a discount for the two events, one after the other, consecutive events at JW3. And you just book a day if you like. And remind us when the week is. Jewish Book Week takes place between the 18th and 28th of February. Evening events and weekends at King's Place, lunch times and afternoons at JW3. And children, are they welcome? Are there any interesting activities for them to do? Children are welcome, but we don't actually programme specifically for children. But we always have the odd event that we think will interest children. And sometimes, interestingly enough, they come en masse to, you know, from um, last year they came from Wimbledon Cader. And this year we're putting on events in schools. So we have a number of events that are, our speakers are going to six formers and speaking about five or six of our speakers. They're also going on tour all over the provinces. And we've also got Judith Kerr. Lucy Silver, the co-chair and director of Jewish Book Week, speaking to Kate Fulton there. And if you would like more information, as Lucy has just said, you can always go to jewishbookweek.com, where you'll find all the information on all the events. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, Crohn's disease is alarmingly common amongst Jewish people. So it's not really a surprise that one of the only dedicated charities to the condition was founded by members of the community. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to one of the members of its committee, Paul Goodmaker, about a forthcoming fundraising event that they are putting on to raise awareness for the condition. Diana started by asking Paul to tell us a bit about the charity itself. The Full Crohn's charity was established 14 years ago by two then 16-year-old friends, both of whom lived in Stanmore, Natasha Adley and Lisa Mellick. Both of their mothers have Crohn's disease and they wanted to do something about it. And they created a walk in Hyde Park. And 14 years on, they've successfully run the event every year. And we've nearly raised half a million pounds for research into the condition through the charity. That's amazing. And you held this each year? Yeah, we hold a 10K walk or run. It's up to the participants how they wish to participate every year for the last 14 years, ever since Natasha and Lisa were 16. Right. When you say walkers and runners, I've got this picture of people sort of bumping into each other. Do do they sort of separate and one side's walkers and the other side's runners? Sorry, (laughs) that seems a stupid question. Well, we we stagger the event so that the, the walkers go off first. 
Oh, I see. Right. Uh, uh, and the runners, obviously, afterwards. Now, the event that is happening, which is why you're in the news at the moment, I gather is the latest event, the latest walk, if one can call it that, on Saturday the 23rd of July. Is that right? Yes, that's the 10K for Crohn's event taking place in Hyde Park. Right. And just tell me a little bit more about that. How do you get on the walk and how much does it cost you? Participants have the choice to either walk or run. You can register on our website, which is fourcrones.org. It costs £15 to register to walk and £18 to register if you wish to run. And as part of that fee, you get obviously entrance into the event and a free tea and entertainment after the event in the park as well. That's amazing. So while you're at the end of the, the run, while you're sort of panting and collapsed, you're, you're entertained and given tea. Is that Abs- right? Absolutely. And we have a masseuse on hand as well who can relieve some of those tired and aching muscles as well. And you register online. When do you have to get your name down for this particular run? We'd like people to register as soon as possible because the sooner they register, the sooner they can start fundraising and get their sponsorship in. But everybody can register for the event up until the evening before. Oh, I see. Right, so they've got a good few months then to get their names down, but the sooner the better is what you're saying. The sooner the better, and those people that wish to run will probably have to start their training regime pretty soon as well. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. This is presumably a long run. I mean, all day or just the morning or just the afternoon? No, it's t- it, it, it's 10 kilometres. So the speediest runners we've had tend to complete it in around about 25 to 30 minutes. But we find most runners complete it within an hour. The walkers take up to about two hours. So the event kicks off in the morning and then finishes off with lunch at about one o'clock. And Paul, is this disease prevalent within the Jewish community? Absolutely. There's uh, over 115,000 people with Crohn's disease in the UK. About three quarters of those people will need bowel resection surgery at some point in their lifetime. And the prevalence of Crohn's within the Ashkenazi Jewish population is almost four times greater than other populations. Four times greater? Really? It, yes. I mean, are you comparing Ashkenazi with Sephardim or, or, or what? No, just the, broader, just the broader population. It's particularly the genes within the Ashkenazi Jewish and this heritage. Is a, and this is a serious, a very serious illness, isn't it? It is a serious Something illness. Something for um, which there is, one assumes, no cure but treatment? Unfortunately, we don't know enough about the condition, so we don't know what causes it, and therefore we don't have a cure. But there are treatments through medication, more often than not, unfortunately, is surgery, but it's only a temporary cure. There is no long-lasting cure, unfortunately, and that's ultimately why we set up the charity to try and do something about it, to fund research that tries to eventually find a cure for this condition. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is children's author Joe Craig and community volunteer Andy Lucas. 
And the subject for this edition, as, as we heard earlier, based on the last remaining synagogue in Cork, Ireland, closing its doors for the final time, ending over 130 years of history in that region for Jews. So the question has to be, is it inevitable that communities come and go, or should we be doing more to preserve areas that Jews call their home? Josh, we'll start with you. I think that there is an inevitability to an ebb and flow of communities. But I suppose the important thing is that it's, it's the come bit of come and go, that this is an example of a community going, but we need to have confidence that community will come again in some other form. But the feeling is that the coming back in some other form is not going to happen. Well, it might be a question of time, or a question of reach of the culture of uh, Judaism and the, and the religion, but it's also a question of whether we are worried about the preservation of a synagogue for itself, for, for what it is as a historic building, or whether it's a living community. And there's nothing that you can do really to, to fake a living, vibrant community. You can preserve a synagogue as a building and have a historical protection thing around it, but if the people aren't there to breathe life into it, there's not much that you can do to, to protect that if it's just a natural waning of, uh, of that culture within that bit of the world and that population. Andy, what do you think? I think he's probably right with the ebb and flow of people. But how many Jewish people, how many Jewish families were there in Cork? There's far more in Dublin and possibly in Belfast, but I don't know anyone that comes from Cork, I have to say. And I know, I, I know quite a few Irish people but none that come from Cork, I as far Cork, as I'm aware. Cork was quite a vibrant Jewish community, as far as vibrant Jewish communities go in, in Ireland. It was one of the more well-known ones, which I think is a shame, really, because, I, I mean, I'm a provincial Jew. Mm. We have been in London for 18 years, but I grew up in Bournemouth. And I actually think it would be a terrible shame to lose provincial communities because they're so different. They bring such a different angle when i came to london and met north london jews there's very much as we all know there's, <laughs> there's a type you know that, that people conform to which is lovely and i actually wanted to be a part of that and for my children to be a part of it but i find provincial jews actually find them a bit more worldly because they seem to experience a bit more to life than just their community. I don't know. They're also much warmer, much warmer in sort of enveloping people into their communities rather than up here where it depends on which community you belong to yes. as to whether you get involved or not. Mm. Is that so, really the case? I mean, I would have thought that most synagogues in London are really quite warm and friendly. There is one which I'm not going to I'm not going to say what it is. There is one I know that I know very well. There where people used to say they're not very friendly, but it's become more friendly in recent years. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe you're right. But, you know, this was the feeling, you know, sort of when I've moved up from Reading and Basingstoke, which is where I come from originally, and I moved back to Stamford Hill. Some of the Jewish girls were just absolutely awful. So, you know, and they, they were just... And I remember sort of at Yontus going sort of walkabout, doing the shawl crawl, as we used to call it, going to different shawls on Yom Kippur especially, and then ending up in Springfield Park. So from that point of view, it was all-encompassing. But 
We never used to go into shul. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the sadnesses about the current, the present time, is so many Jews are now becoming not religious, are marrying out, as it were. Um, and I think this is having a, a greatly sad effect. There are many synagogues. This is not the one in Cork is not the only one. There are many synagogues all over Britain and Ireland and other countries as well, France definitely, where people are, synagogues are disappearing because people are no longer going there. And surely this is a, is a sadness. It might well also be tied up with other movements of the population and, and more to do with Cork or as much to do with Cork in the nature of living in Cork than it is about Judaism and Jews in Cork. If Cork was a very different place to be 50, 100, 150 years ago as the general industry of the area and the culture of the area has changed anyway. So Judaism in Cork is very much tied up with what's happening Do you know in Cork. Cork? You I've know? been to Cork. It's absolutely beautiful. I've been to the Literary Festival there. It's absolutely wonderful. But it's not... Although it's lovely and very well known and beautiful, it's not what you'd call a huge centre of population. There's not hundreds of thousands of people there. It, it, and, and with any Jewish community, because there aren't that many of us around the world, there's the, the suck of the big cities and we're drawn together. And that's inevitably going to lead to some of the peripheral communities. So what you're really away. saying is that it is in, in the Republic of Ireland, Dublin is the centre for the, for the Irish Jews. And in this country, London and uh, perhaps Glasgow or Edinburgh and definitely Manchester are the places where all the Jews go. And you're saying that there won't be many Jews left in the rest, rest well, of this country? I, I think in an ideal world, what you want is to be able to say, wherever I put a pin on this map of the world, I'll be able to feel at home in some kind of Jewish community. But I think that's unrealistic. I mean, maybe one day that will happen. But also, there's a strength in the community coming together. And if that means coming towards where the big centres of community are and the bigger synagogues... But what we call, all of us, what we call Jews is the middle-of-the-road Jews, if you yeah. like. Mm. And they seem to be getting fewer and fewer and fewer. You either have the ultra-religious or you have the people who've gone to the liberal synagogue and, and the mm. reform synagogue. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying that the, the people who are the backbone of Judaism in Britain... Mm. no longer exist, and therefore synagogues are becoming deserted. I, th I think that might be a generational thing as well, that, that what people consider to be the middle of the road of Judaism does change gradually over the years. So what my parents would have considered the backbone of Judaism, their brand of Judaism, if you like, sort of middle of the road, fairly liberal Judaism, changes colour, changes flavour slightly with each generation that passes down. Do you think that's that's fair? Yeah, I think so. And I, I also think that the polarisation of Judaism is ha will always have an effect on this because you'll have the people who... We're, we're a pioneering people, aren't we? We yeah. go out yeah. and we do things and we get things done. And, and that's... I think that's what's <laughs> happening here. The fact that you've got the religious Jews, if they want to become more religious, where do they go? They go to the cities, to the religious communities. If they're not religious and they want to carve out a career, again, they don't stay in Cork or Bournemouth <laughs> or wherever, you know. And, and mm. yeah, I think it is, it's, a, it is a worrying trend. But it was, it's, it's a natural thing for us to do that. Do you think it's more of an issue for Judaism than, than other religions because there's also this, the factor of Israel, that there's a sort of understanding an undercurrent beneath everything that at some point we should all return to Israel. And so there's a sort of... I uh, don't know that that comes into it, quite honestly, because there are a lot of Jewish people who who wouldn't even think about going to Israel. Mm. 
you know, they want to be here. England is where they were born. England is where they live. They want to stay here, but they want to be in the area where they feel comfortable. And as it happens, Bournemouth is taking off again because I know I've got three co- three sets of cousins who have just moved down to Bournemouth. So, you know, that's, that is one area where it is beginning to take off again. But, you know, I, I just think that Jews are Jews and they're going to be wherever they're going to be. And you do find that they people find each other and they get together. As you see, the, the most famous synagogue in England, the oldest synagogue in England, and the most beautiful synagogue Bevis in England Marks. is Beavis Marks. And yet now it has a, a very small congregation. In fact, if, if you go there on Shabbat, you probably see about 35 to 45 people. That's right in the heart of the city of London, and there's the, the biggest Jewish population there. It may be because it's difficult to get to in the city of London. It may be because people live in different places. Or maybe because Judaism is not what it was. Well, we're a nomadic tribe, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) We just keep proving it. East End to then move slightly further north and northwest. You know, even you look at northwest London, Golders Green, Hendon. Edgeware, Mill, you know, and yeah. now Boreham Wood. It's the far, Boreham Wood's the fastest growing community, I think, in Europe. Isn't it? Absolutely, Jewish community. And you know, we buy up an area, increase the value of the property, sell it on, and move <laughs> that's what I was going to say. That it's caught up in so many other factors as well that we don't yeah. exist in isolation. We exist within the socio-economic world, yeah. and property prices and all of that, and that that's part of the move from the East End to North London as well, becoming more affluent. It's interesting what you said, though, about Israel, because it did make me think that maybe we do like safety in numbers. Mm. There is that kind of feeling safe, because especially in the last year and a half, you know, the rise in anti-Semitism has been obscene, really. Well, that's interesting you say that as well, because according to the most recent uh, news, the actual anti-Semitism tax against Jews in this country has gone down by a small percentage. Right. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's interesting. It's, yeah. per- it's perception of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, isn't it? Has a large effect. So things that are reported in the press, if there's a sort of mood of racial tension, then people see those things reported a lot more. I think this is the one that you keep. I keep trying to bring into the discussion, and you all keep <laughs> changing it. Is that I think the reason is much more serious than all of that. I think it's because Judaism. I wouldn't go so strongly as to say Judaism is dying in this country, but it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller as there are more and more intermarriages and the children are not brought up as Jews, which means that in every generation they're going to be less Jews. You're talking about a particular kind of Jews. The Judaism that you see as being the heart of Judaism is getting smaller, but there's different sorts of Jews. What you would call the best, what I would call, maybe it's it's very (laughs) silly of me, but I would call the cream of Anglo-Jewry is changing. Yes, I'd agree yes. with that. I agree yeah. with certainly changing. And I think changing could be a very healthy thing. I think, could it? Yeah, that, I think that We so. have more and more ultra-religious people that who live in their own tribe. Mm. That I don't like, personally. Yeah. No, I agree but, with but that. But the, the other end are sort of a more open, uh, more integrated... There's certainly a, there's such a huge Jewish influence on British culture at large and a, a greater understanding of Judaism. But that's, that's not religion as such. That's... True. 
you know, the history yeah. of, 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 of the religion. It's people actually going to synagogues and, and exactly. doing whatever and keeping kosher and, and doing everything that goes with it. And I think, I, you know, there are so many Jewish schools out there that people want to send their children to. So I don't know that Judaism will ever die out. You know, the, the schools that are within northwest London area are getting oversubscribed and they're building more. So... You know, you can't say that it's going to die and because they're getting the, the input, if you like. Yeah, from is, is it really that new a phenomenon that Jews are moving away, that the middle ground moves away? Surely this is sort of like a cyclical thing. That mm. I mean, I think we mentioned it before on the schmooze about how in the 1930s in Germany, so many Jews moved away. If, well, many Jews said away because there was a man called Hitler. Well, no, before that, before that, the German Jews saw themselves as Germans that just happened to be Jews. I mean, then you look back at, came back quite a long way to Egypt. <laughs> the exodus from Egypt, yeah. one in seven Jews came out of Egypt. That's all, because so many of them didn't want to, because they were happy, they weren't bothered about Judaism, they'd, you know, integrated into Egyptian life, and this, this, this keeps happening. You know, we're, we're a small nation and we're kept small. And maybe intermarriage and losing people through, through through means like that, maybe that's supposed to be happening. I think a point of comparison might, and I don't know a huge amount about this, but I've, but I've read that Jews are leaving France in record numbers. Yes. Well, that's Most, because of anti yeah. And yeah. that's much more concerning. So it's an interesting comparison that in Britain, Jews seem to hold a different place in society, perhaps because more integrated, perhaps we're, for whatever reason. It's because the British are are more tolerant and more accepting. And also we don't have quite the large Muslim community who are very anti-Jewish. Well, we don't have Um, the radical Muslim community that that France seems to have. Yes, because they've got them in in a certain area and they've been very ghettoised. I'm not quite sure that's fair because I I remember reading, and and I do in fact know because I looked into it in in some, some detail, that apparently in the Nazi period, when France was occupied, the French sold many more Jews to the, to the SS oh, yeah. than actually the Germans did. <laughs> the French have always been, I think, more anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not a new thing. No, no, no. I'm all, not... I'll add, all I'll add to that is probably, it's probably a good job that we never found out how efficiently the British sold Jews out to the, to the SS, because that would probably be an embarrassing comparison. Well, do you think well. they do? Well, I don't know. Given the, the record of some of the British upper classes, they might have just given whole, no, I mean, given whole towns away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that didn't happen because... No, of course, it didn't happen for other reasons. This country wasn't occupied. But, I, yeah, I think uh, we're in a privileged position to be able to, to wag off No, you see, France. because I think you're being a bit unfair, because equally... Among the most amazingly Europeans who saved Jews were the Germans. Yeah. There were many Germans who saved yeah. Jews in Germany. Many more Germans who saved Jews than the French. So I have been told. Yeah, I've heard. Some yeah, I've heard yeah. that. There are so many reasons why people leave then, isn't there? It's how can you nail down the reason why the, the shawl in Cork has closed when I mean mm. just in this discussion how many different reasons can there be well it's a sad way in which to end this discussion but my thanks to our guests children's author Joe Craig and community volunteer Andy Lucas time now for our rabbinic thought of the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue there is no doubt that Jethro is my favourite character in the Torah 
He symbolizes either the archetypal convert or champion of interfaith understanding, as well as being the first management consultant in history. Then there is a small matter, of course, that he gave his name to the inventor of the seed drill, one of the heroes of the agrarian revolution, and most importantly, the name transmitted to the marvelous progressive rock bands, Jethro Tull. But as Aviva Zornberg, one of the greatest contemporary biblical commentators notes, it is the concept of kavod, honor, that perhaps explains why the man who is Moses, his father-in-law, is so important to the Israelite story. Jethro shows kavod to Moses by offering him hospitality and then the hand of a daughter, Tipporah, in marriage, formalizing their special relationship after Moses has protected Jethro's daughters from other shepherds. A few years on, Jethro responds simply to Moses' request to go back to see how his people are faring in Egypt. Lech le shalom, go and return in peace. He does not seek to dissuade his son-in-law, giving him the honor of accepting his decision-making. Then again, after the exodus from Egypt, Jethro honors Moses by not making assumptions, by walking in on him unannounced, but sends word to Moses of his approach. He is rewarded with an emotional, or at least as emotional as the Torah expresses, Moses, who, Vayetze Likrat, runs out to personally meet Jethro, Vayishtachu, and bows low to him, Vayishaklo, and embraces him. Each asks after the other's shalom, well-being. And also, this word comes from the root, which means wholeness, perhaps symbolizing a complete relationship. The sincerity and depth of kavod that is offered by Moses to his father-in-law Jethro is one that I witness in the relationship between our Cheder children and Walter Wegg, a teacher well into his late 80s, a Holocaust survivor, who every Shabbat conquers the various hurdles in his path to mount the stairs of this synagogue to teach Hebrew, as he did for me in the 1970s, climbing the stairs to the balcony of our old Hallowell Road sanctuary, overcoming adversity just as he did, rebuilding his life having survived the Shoah. And over these past two weeks, every survivor speaker at the Northwood Holocaust Memorial Day events receives an intense kavod from the hundreds of school children who listen to them, awed by the mere fact of this human being's survival and often by the miracles and pure chance that gifted this encounter, often awed by the sheer grotesque evil that beset this individual and awed by the human kindnesses shown by those who refuse to participate in atrocities or to passively stand by. This past couple of weeks, we have seen the whole of the UK give kavod to these remarkable people who we are honored to call our family, our friends, our fellow congregants. To those who are able to speak and those who cannot, they bring kavod to us all. And last week, our country gave kavod to them all. Honor our survivors, honor their life experience, by determining to share their survival with others. The ultimate kavod we can offer our survivors is the knowledge that we will not only transmit their message, but live it. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Stuart Rosenblatt, Lucy Silver, Paul Goodmaker, and thanks also to our panellists on The Schmooze, Andy Lucas and Joe Craig. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk.
And also you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.